Hi there, and thanks for joining me on part two of this fascinating interview from the 2022 ANZIC CTG Noosa meeting, featuring clip two with Chief Investigator Michael Reid. Tell us about the primary outcome that you're going to be using as part of this study. The primary outcome that we're using is is derived from what we found in the uh, pilot study, um, which uh, I mean we looked at various outcomes uh, and assessed them all for suitability. The one that we found most suitable was uh, blood uh, coming from the chest drains at, at 24 hours, which was nearly identical uh, in the two trial groups in in the in the pilot study. And you might say, well, you know, why, why would you choose an outcome that was nearly identical? Um, We've designed this as a non-inferiority study. We'll talk a bit more about that in a tick, perhaps. But um, uh, because that's a quantitative outcome, a continuous quantitative outcome that really isn't open to being gamed at all, it's not open to anyone's judgment, we think that's a, a good, solid, robust uh, outcome. Unlike, for example, um, number of red cells transfused, which would also be a continuous outcome but it's a stepped continuous outcome and it's also open to people's judgment so i can decide whether to give or not give a red cell transfusion i can't decide how much blood is going to come out of the the chest tube so we think it's a, a better outcome um, for, for for that reason um you referred to this as the definitive study a little earlier but mm. the primary outcome that you've mentioned there is possibly could be argued is not a patient-centred outcome. Will this be the study that defines whether this is effective or not? Look, I, I think it will, um, but you, your question's uh, a, a good one, and it's one that the reviewers of our grant also asked. The question really relates to the definition of a primary outcome. So, and I talk to students about this all the time. So the primary outcome is the outcome that defines the sample size of the study or the size of the study. It's not necessarily the most important outcome. As long as the outcomes, you know, even you know, what you think is the most important outcome, as long as the sample size that you need to be sufficiently sure of is smaller than the outcome the, the sample size that you've defined by the primary outcome, then that's okay. So let's say, let's say, I mean, very few of these patients are going to, patients are going to die, but let's just, just say mortality you decided was the, the most important patient centered outcome. That would actually be a bad choice because so few people died, but let's say. And you decided, you know, you did the sample size calculation on that and you decided that you needed a, a sample size of 100 to be. 95% sure that there was non-inferiority between the two groups with a certain margin of error. Um, okay, so that needs a sample size of 100. But the sample size for the non-inferiority calculation for bleeding with a non-inferiority margin of 20% is 200. So as long as I've got 200 patients, I'm going to be more than sure enough about mortality. So I've covered my most important outcome but I've still got a primary outcome that's larger. <laughs> I possibly haven't explained that as well as I could, but I hope you get the sense that the primary outcome is not necessarily the same thing as the most important outcome. They're, they're two different concepts. 
Now, you mentioned that CLIP2 will be a non-inferiority study. This does take a little bit of getting your head around if you're not familiar with the concept. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, it does. And, uh, and, and again, this is something that we have a chat about on rounds uh, when we talk about studies a, a fair bit. So I do hope I can explain this clearly enough. Um, and, and, you know, the best way to do it is to contrast to the type of study that we're used to, which is a superiority study. So we usually set out to show that an experimental intervention is better than something standard care. Otherwise, you know, why, why would we do something different to standard care. We usually gloss over this in the power calculation, but part of designing that type of study is to specify how much better the outcome has to be with the experimental intervention to lead to a change in practice. Because that defines then the sample size it's part of what defines the sample size that you need to recruit into the study so if, if you're aiming for an effect size of you know, a five percent reduction in mortality that's going to need a different sample size to one that aims for two percent reduction in mortality so we specify the effect size and then we do the calculations we okay how many people are going to need to see that effect size and away we go so that's a superiority study here we're saying, well, these platelets, these frozen platelets, they don't have to be better than conventional liquid stored platelets in either patient-centered outcomes like mortality or incidence of ARDS or incidence of infection or, or bleeding or receipt of blood transfusion products or anything like that because they're better in other ways. They're going to be more available and ultimately they'll be cheaper. So, so they just have to not be any worse than conventional care. And actually, they could even be a little bit worse because of all those other advantages. So how much worse could you tolerate before you say, well, actually, that's too bad? And I wouldn't tolerate that. So that's kind of the same thing as, in fact, it's exactly the same thing in reverse, as how much better does this intervention have to be before I would change my mind? So... So here we've said, okay, so the reason you're giving platelets is to stop bleeding. And in the pilot study, we, we found that people bled about, on, on average, the median was 900 mils of blood out of their chest drain in the first 24 hours. So we said, okay, so if these things are within a 20% margin of that, if they, if they let people bleed a little bit more, 20% more, um, then that would be okay. Any more than 20%, then they're not really very effective. So let's do our calculation on a, a non-inferiority margin of 20%, which works out to be 1.1 litres or something, something like that. Um, as long as it's within that, then that's good enough and we would, we would use them. And let's see how many patients we need. And it turns out to be 202 patients. And then we looked at all those other safety outcomes. And it turns out that because they happen so infrequently, you need a much lower sample size to be sure that there's not an increased incidence of death and ARDS and so on. So they're well within that sample size. Um, so, so there we go. That's how we end up with a 20% a non-inferiority margin, um, giving a sample size of 202 patients. Michael, there's been a number of other challenges that you've encountered as part of setting up this trial too. Can you tell us about some of those? Yeah, in, indeed. Um, this uh, is 
an unusual study uh, in in some ways um, for for our intensive care community. Um, wouldn't be unusual uh, unusual maybe if if we were doing if we were oncologists and, and we were used to um, dealing with experimental therapeutics that were being manufactured in a uh, in in a laboratory that. Uh, you know, was used to making things that weren't already registered for clinical use. But in intensive care, we, we're typically uh, doing trials of a, of a drug that's already been registered for, for you know, use. Or uh, sometimes we, we will use, uh, we, we will uh, do phase two studies of, uh, of, of drugs uh, that have emerged from a, a you know, pharmaceutical company's laboratory. Um, and, and, you know, we'll do them under very tightly controlled circumstances, but it's the pharmaceutical company that's taking entire responsibility for the manufacturing process. And so when the drug arrives in a vial, we're, we're, we're at least confident that it's been, you know, manufactured under sterile conditions and that this lot is the same as this lot and, and so on. So here, we don't have any of that. Um, we've got our partners at Lifeblood who've looked at the protocol that's been developed by the Americans and the Dutch and said, well, yep, we think we could do that. Um, we've never done that before, but yes, we, we're, you know, we're good, competent laboratory scientists. We think we could do that. Um, um, but we're going to have to employ a whole lot of good manufacturing process, uh, GMP uh, regulations uh, to be able to produce you a good product. And, and so they spent a number of years um, getting their laboratory up to speed to be able to produce it's not quite a pharmaceutical grade products it's not blood products are not pharmaceuticals but it's the same principle and their focus was entirely on 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 producing a, a product of the, the right standard reproducibly without any hint of infection and right concentration of dmso and all that sort of thing and in their minds I mean, I say this with the greatest respect to them. In their minds, that was the challenge of the study, was, was to produce the product. And, and, you know, we were just the clinicians who were going to give it and see what happened. And in our minds, and I now speak on behalf of you know, the cardiac surgeons, the anaesthetists, the hematologists, our research managers and coordinators, and, and ourselves as intensivists, in our minds, we were just used to taking a product that, of course, we knew worked and was safe, that was all just given. And, and we knew how complicated it was to run a clinical trial. And so, you know, that was going to take a lot of time. And so these were two, here were two worlds that had two completely different understandings of the challenges that lay ahead of us way back in 2014. So that, that was a clash of cultures that, you know, fortunately was easy to navigate because we're all good people and understood we were coming from different perspectives and could talk to one another but it was a it was a it was a very different trial paradigm to one that i've ever been involved with in intensive care we needed to understand them they needed to understand us and in particular too i've lift, listed all the specialties that are involved in this study this this is not an intensive care study I mean, I, you know, I wouldn't say that to the people who are involved in intensive care because in their mind it is. But putting it all together, um, you know, it's the cardiac surgeons who really have to talk to their patients and say, well, I think this is all right, you need to do this. And then the anaesthetists um, who are often part of that conversation as well um, need to agree that, you know, this is going to be part of their perioperative management. And, and the haematologists um, need to buy into this as well. So it's, it's truly a multidisciplinary study. And then again, one that we're not really used to doing uh, in, in intensive care trials. So, so that's been uh, uh, quite a challenge um, organisationally, but also convincing people that there's equipoise for it. 
I mean, I'm kind of putting this to you that, you know, this is a great thing and it's something we have to do. Some people are so convinced that they think we shouldn't do a trial. Uh, you know, they look at the evidence and they say, you've given it to a thousand Dutchmen and Australian soldiers and, and you know, we should just do this. The benefits are there. And other people, and you know, in particular, uh, and, and I absolutely understand why they would say this to cardiac surgeons who say, well, are you going to clot my grafts? Um, this, this is a real concern here. I, you need to convince me that you know, I'm not running the risk here um, or my patients aren't. And, and so we've really had to um, bring people along a journey of, of understanding that there is equipoise, a, a, a genuine uncertainty. And part of, part of that concept of equipoise is, is not just that there is uncertainty, but there is a reason to answer this question that will be beneficial to patients, not beneficial to us as investigators, but beneficial to patients. And that there is potential benefit to the individual patient who will receive this intervention, which, you know, I genuinely believe there is. I think that, you know, that, that highly likely that these are hemostatically more beneficial that the infection risk is lower um, and and you know so the patients themselves may receive some benefit so bringing people along that journey has been the challenge so far michael just to finish up on you referred earlier to something quite fascinating the individual patient data meta-analysis so what is that and how does it differ from a conventional meta-analysis yeah, it's something that's entered our literature in, in intensive care um, really only in the last 10 years or so. I, mean, I, I think everyone listening will be familiar with the concept of a meta-analysis, a, a quantitative combining uh, of, of the data from a number of studies to um, you know, put it all together and get the, the, the right answer. But the vast majority of meta-analyses that people will see and, and have read uh, are aggregate meta-analyses um, where, where the point estimate and the measure of distribution um, from a variety of studies has really just been read in the paper where it was published and then put together uh, as a as a as an aggregate um, and that works uh, in in many cases um, but uh, in particular when you're trying to tease out the effect of subgroups uh, of patients um, it can uh, lead to a a false conclusion and um, it, it's, it's difficult to explain this in a podcast without reference to a, to a figure. Um, but if, if people want to look at the figure, there's a paper I wrote back in 2009 that explains something called the ecological fallacy. So if you look, look me up and, and, and look for individual patient data and patient data meta-analysis, Anthony Delaney and I wrote a paper explaining this. There's something called the ecological fallacy um, that uh, is a phenomenon in epidemiology um, where you draw wrong inferences about individual characteristics uh, of patients um, based on the aggregate statistics uh, for the group to which those individuals belong um, so that's a bit of a that's a bit of a mouthful isn't it um, and an example we use in the paper uh, it relates to the effect of age uh, which is you know commonly explored um, subgroup effect um, you know people want to see if their drug for example um, is more or less efficacious according to to age um, and different trials have patients enrolled different median ages um, but uh, a common problem um, that affects um, 
the effect of age, uh, confounded to age, uh, for example, um, is is wealth or socioeconomic status. But by and large, uh, the older we get, um, the more affluent uh, we get. I know that's a gross generalisation, but it's by and large true. Um, and and so you can make the wrong inference about age um, by mistaking the effect of wealth for, for age. Anyway, I haven't explained that very well. I'm perfectly aware of that. But if you have a look at the paper, there's a nice diagram that explains how you can be misled. So, so in particular, when you're looking for these subgroup effects um, in, in pooling all of this data in, in meta-analysis, you can be led to the, to the wrong conclusion. So you get over that by looking for um, the effects at the individual patient data level. So, so instead of just looking at the aggregated data from a number of studies, you go to the studies and you say you need the actual individual patient data and you pull it all together, you still need to take into account that they came from different trials. So you, you can't just put them all together as if they came from one study, that, that also would be incorrect. But taking into account they came from different studies, you can then tease out um, subgroup effects whether it's according to age or gender or you know what have you. Um, severity of illness is a, is a particularly common one. Um, you know, often we maybe don't see an effect uh, of an intervention applied to a, a group, but we might hypothesize that it only worked in people who were very sick. We, we don't have enough patients in one trial to be sure of that. So we put a number of trials together and see if it did in fact only work in people who were, who were very sick. So, um, there's a number of other benefits for individual patient data, patient data meta-analysis. In particular, um, it enables you to go back and do regression analyses, so more powerful regression analyses, uh, using all of that individual patient data than the individual studies themselves were able to, to do. Um, it enables you to check the analyses that were done in the individual patient studies. It enables you to look at more sophisticated outcome measures like time to event measures rather than landmark measures and so on. Um, so put it this way, it, it's the gold standard way of doing a meta-analysis. And so you might ask, well, why don't we do this more often? Um, the, the answer to that is they're, they're quite complicated to do, um, especially if the data sets in the trials haven't been harmonised from the start. So it, it becomes much more straightforward if you've got, as we will have, three trial data sets that have collected exactly the same data much easier to pull. If you've got three trial data sets that have done completely different things and, and you've got to have you know, some sort of data interpretation rule to, to translate the way one study has coded socioeconomic status so that it you know, is equivalent in all three studies, that becomes an enormous amount of work. Um, and, and, and it's really why this isn't done much more often because people try and do it post hoc, find that they can't. Or, or that it's just too much effort. So we've got the great advantage of being able to plan this um, beforehand. We'll use the same trial data sets and, and hopefully, touch wood, um, that, that will make it much easier. Michael, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast again and going through both platelets and, and the exciting opportunities that lie ahead with uh, cryopreserved platelets, but also the inner workings of a trial and how you go about doing those things. Thanks very much. My pleasure, Todd. Thanks again for the opportunity. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Get all of our great podcast interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes and articles by downloading our free app. Search for My Osler wherever you get your apps or visit our website at oslercommunity.com.